strange things are afoot at the Circle K. about that quite sweet really aren't it? god i love this street no one and welcome back to another episode of bill and claire's excellent adventures i am your host billy das aka the indie dork i've taken over the introduction co-hosts yeah what is this host business well but you guys said I should introduce it so you you haven't even uh, been introduced no. yet no that's not you true you haven't been introduced that's not yet. true claire said you could introduce it right Nobody even asked if I wanted to introduce it. Yeah, because your opinion doesn't matter. I'm getting to that. We'll get, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. This You're is, interrupting. This is maybe not the episode where you want to uh, marginalize people. Uh, because it's West Side Story. <laughs> okay. Who's doing this introduction? Is it me or is it you guys? It should really be me. It's, but... No, but it's me. It's yeah. me. It's me. That's what we decided. <laughs> it's me. All right. So let me, let, me, <laughs> let me do the introduction business. All right. Here we go. Okay. So. We are here today to talk about West Side Story, but we've missed a couple of weeks in the interim. There's been a lot of stuff that's been going on since we put out our first episode in, I guess, what we're calling hashtag Operation Dancing Shoes. Gluteus Fabulous. Or Gluteus Fabulous. Uh, I mean, whichever way you want to go on that. Uh, I think they're both wonderful. We've been actually pretty busy. I went to LA to host the Q&As for uh, Jeremy Gardner and Christian Stella's latest film, after Midnight, which is now out on VOD. So if you haven't taken a look at that film, I definitely encourage you to do that. That was a really wonderful time, but it also put us back a week in terms of our production schedule because I was off gallivanting in LA and not doing any of the Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures podcast hosting that I'm supposed to be doing. But then I got back from LA and we got busy again because your mom was invited to be a guest host for another podcast. And she spent the weekend preparing for that. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk about that, Danielle. Arthritis. Yeah, I was, I co-hosted an episode of the Voices 360 podcast, which is put out by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. And I was, yeah, your dad does work for them. He is their podcast producer. Yeah, but the fix wasn't in. I didn't invite you on the show. Um, No, yeah, I volunteer for them separately. The host for the organization (laughs) invited you on. She said, what do you think about this bill? And I said, I don't know. I mean, she does okay on Bill and Claire's. We'll have to see. Yeah. So he's available to produce uh, your podcast or any other <laughs> podcast if you are looking for a podcast producer. Not available as a spouse. He's taken and not very good at it. So he's he is also going to be my podcast producer when I put out my podcast next year. That is accurate. That's true. Now, Daniel, what you talk about on this episode? Uh, my episode was about discrimination in the workplace of people with disabilities and chronic illnesses. So uh, that episode is actually out right now. It came out on Sunday, so you can go find the Air Arthritis Voices 360 podcast. Uh, I'll probably throw up a link in the description of the episode so you can click over to it. But, you know, if if chronic illness uh, or discrimination in the workplace due to chronic illness or disabilities is something that you've ever thought about, uh, and and it probably has been for most people, give that episode a listen. I thought it was really terrific. So, um, So, yeah, but we've been very, very busy, but now it's time to come back and actually finally talk about West Side Story, which is a movie I feel like we watched approximately seven years ago. But you had doubts about Uh, her. 
who did I had doubts about your mom? Wait, yeah. what? You said that you didn't think that she was going to do very well. You said that she wasn't going to do very well. About in what? In the podcast. Vo- On the, the podcast. Like, which podcast? Like two minutes ago. How are you going to remember West Side Story from seven years ago when you don't remember what you said two minutes ago? I don't it listen when I speak. It was seven years ago. It was seven <laughs> weeks ago. Oh, wait, no. It wasn't, it wasn't even that long. It was like <laughs> three weeks three ago. Three weeks ago. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know. It was a two-hour yeah. long movie. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was long. Um, but and okay. I got to eat Pringles and the Gatorade. Which was a good time. But so you should you should check out After Midnight and you should check out the A Arthritis Voices three sixty podcast. And now you should listen to us talk about West Side Story, which is a movie we watched three weeks ago. <laughs> that you said was seven years ago. But that's my hosting business done. I feel like I've done my job for this episode. Danielle, you're in charge. Go. So when we were coming up with the list of films to include in our musical run, um, I had to deliberate about West Side Story a little bit. It's one of those films that is so incredibly famous that it's almost a disservice to do any kind of film history study about musicals and not include West Side Story. On the other hand, it was produced um, in released in 1961, and uh, you know sensibilities in 2020 are a lot different than they were in 1961. It, it raised some issues for me about you know do we want to cover a movie that has um, clearly some issues with racism on our podcast and ultimately I decided yes that we should do it because there there are good things in West Side Story and there's a lot that you can take from the film that has value and the important thing when you're showing a film like this to children especially is co-viewing is watching it with your kids and providing context for how do you internalize what you're being shown drawing attention to the parts that you know, uh, could have been better and how they could have been better is really important. And so I thought modeling that for one of our episodes had value. But it, so it was definitely a controversial pick for me. Um, and I think probably the most well, controversial film we've done yet. I don't know if controversial is the word that I would use, but certainly done with care. I mean, the most controversial choice for Claire watching is definitely when she watched the end of Revenge with me. <laughs> but you didn't do an episode on that. I know I didn't do an episode on that. But my, I guess what I'm saying, though, is that there is a lot of good stuff with West Side Story that like is good the way that they deal with it. Like it's mm-hmm. a nice it's it's a quality update on the Romeo and Juliet story. And it's uh, they use Romeo and Juliet as a framework to explore like racism in America and racism in New York at the time, which I think they do a very good job with. But like, I don't think it makes it necessarily controversial that they didn't do a very good job with their casting when they sat down to make this movie about racial tension in New York City or America. Yeah, it's interesting because the the film is based on a Broadway play and there are four men who are really sort of integral um, to creating the film. Arthur Lawrence uh, wrote the book. Leonard Bernstein did the music. You'll remember Arthur Lawrence from when we did Rope. Uh, he wrote the screenplay for Rope. He oh, that's right. Yeah. I knew that we had talked about him before when I was preparing for this episode. I was Rope like, I know boring. this name. I'm surprised that he made this good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was his first effort. And it was, you know, an adapted work. So There you go. So uh, it gets West better. Side Story is his, I guess, even Thank still you. sort of an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Thank yeah. you. Um, I don't think West Side Story is, his, it's certainly not his screenwriting debut. Um, but uh, Rope was. Yeah. Uh, the music is by Leonard Bernstein. Lyrics are by Stephen Sondheim. Um, the screenplay was written by Ernest Lehman, and it was directed by Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. So you have this group of white men. White um, men. 
That sounds familiar. White men, white men, white men. Oh, yeah. White men everywhere. <laughs> that is accurate, Claire. That's pretty good to be a white man uh, pretty much anywhere, anytime. So you have all these white men who got together and decided to create a work about a number of issues that were very important at the time. One of the things that I learned that I thought was really interesting is sort of the backdrop for the creation of this. Um, when these gentlemen sat down and decided to create West Side Story, there was a lot of controversy in New York because the city was trying to build the Lincoln Center Arts um, campus. Okay. So they were constructing, at that time, they were trying to buy up property and clear it out to create this um, very high-end... Uh, did performing destroy people's homes. Oh yes. yeah, totally yes, it did. Almost all of those public works improvement projects, where they're like, "We're going to make a new, really expensive community building," they usually buy out land or buildings that are occupied by low-income people because it's the most affordable land. Right. So, in the late '40s and the early '50s, the Upper West Side of New York was was um, low-income housing predominantly. Uh, at least according to what I read. I do want to clarify that I did not live there and was not alive at the time. But it was occupied by primarily low-income um, immigrants. So the wealthy center of Manhattan is sort of expanding. It's getting bigger. It's pushing into some of these outer areas. You, it's it's very similar to what's happened in our area. I mean, you've grown up here and you've watched all of these buildings get built in our area, new stores, new apartment complexes, new homes, and you've seen the line of the city expand out past us. Um, that kind of development is similar to sort of what's going on here. Yeah, and so the city decided that they wanted to have a Philharmonic, and they wanted to have an opera house, and they wanted to have you know this place where wealthy people could go to patronize the arts. And they wanted it to be this big project and beautiful architecture. And, you know, I've been to Lincoln Center. It's very, very pretty. Yada, 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 yada for the rich people. <laughs> yes. Claire is very much into the eat the rich mentality at the moment. We're very proud. I'm hungry. <laughs> um, but anyway, in order to do that, the city was trying to push the immigrant populations out of those neighborhoods so that they could buy up the land and bulldoze the tenement buildings and build Lincoln Center. And what happens anytime you have a lot of political instability or economic instability, and also keep in mind that this is during the Cold War. The Cold um, War? What's that? Yeah. The Cold War. Is that is, where people were bringing freezing weapons and destroying people? What the God damn it. If it could have only just been that. It would have been great. Like if Iceman was out there. That would be people. how we would win the war on global warming. A Cold War. <laughs> No. So in political science, a hot war is war where there is actual shooting and what you would conventionally think of as oh, war. Oh, a cold war is like, is like, um, is like, um, what's his name? Gandhi. He was, he was having a war against the people, but he was just sitting there. Mm, not, it's, it's an interesting analogy, but I don't think quite right. In a cold war, the two main parties aren't shooting directly at each other. And oftentimes the conflict will spill out into two other countries fighting with each other uh, as sort of a way for the two countries to fight with each World other without War actually II. shooting at each other. Is that how World War II started? No, it's actually a result of World War II. At the oh. end of World War II, all of the European countries that had been involved in the war the entire time were just decimated financially. They had spent all the money that they had trying to fight the Nazis. 
Um, or or working with the Nazis. Or they had lost everything because they were working with the Nazis and they were on the losing side. Sure. The two powers that emerged with any degree of financial um, superiority after World War II was the Soviet Union, which is now Russia, um, and the United States. And Wait, I have a question. Didn't, didn't um, Hitler kill himself? Hitler did kill himself, yes. Uh, but Stalin, who was the leader of the Soviet Union, did not. And so the Soviet Union and the United States got in this power struggle for who would be boss now that England wasn't anymore, Germany wasn't anymore, and, and these other powers that had had like a Japan. lot of... Japan wasn't anymore. Exactly. Everybody who'd had any degree of influence internationally, except the two countries that I just mentioned, were pretty much decimated. And so they both got into this power struggle of, I'm going to be boss. No, I'm going to be boss. Was and Australia even involved? Australia was um, also had committed just about all their resources to the war in the Pacific, and they were also struggling. And what about Canada and Greenland and Iceland? Which is weird because Greenland is freezing cold what, and Iceland is green. What you, what you should really understand about that is, is basically just that in terms of the strongest countries with the most resources and the strongest militaries at the end of World War II, it was really the Soviet Union, and the United States. Nobody else could match their power or their ability to project their power to different places. And, you know, a country like Canada, it isn't to say that they're weak or not financially resourceful. It's that they don't prioritize militaristic development in the same way that the United States or the Soviet Union did in the aftermath of World War II. And the major defining factor there was that the United States and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons, and nobody else did. Um, and so people in the 50s lived in constant fear oh, of nuclear wait. war. There's a um, game called 60 Seconds, and one of the things, it's called Survive, and there's basically an atomic a nuclear bomb coming to where you are. I think, there, I think it's supposed to be in, like, Manhattan, and there's a nuclear bomb coming, and you have to grab as many supplies as you can, including your family. Like, your family doesn't just walk there with their supplies, apparently. You have to grab your family and your supplies, and then you go in the bunker when the time's up. If you don't go, you're that basically. That's, that's 100% um, um, a, a result of sort of the way that people thought about what could happen to their world. So, like, right now, we talk a lot about global warming um, or the coronavirus that's going around, like the spread of disease, in the way that we talk about those things, that we're afraid of what could change the way the world operates right now, we talk about global warming or disease. In the 50s and 60s, people talked about nuclear war. You know, where now you might see a whole bunch of movies made about the like an apocalypse scenario where all Zombies. like. Well, not zombies so much, but where where like the environment has changed dramatically because of climate change or everybody's dead because of a big viral outbreak or something like that. You would see movies in the 50s and 60s that talked about people's fear of the atomic bomb and what would happen. Businesses thrived on stuff like that. Like you're talking about your game about bunker life and stuff like that. Like like a whole industry grew up where they would sell bunkers that they would install in your backyard underground so that you could have a safe place as soon as the air raid siren went off, um, talking about, you know, like a, a nuclear bomb is coming. Well, this is will protect like, you. Is it like a, um, like, a, um, like a horn or something that you squeeze and it makes like a... <laughs> it's not an awooga. 
I definitely we <laughs> this is a good place that we could like splice in some awuga sound effects and an air raid siren. You know, it's funny, Claire, now that you're mentioning all this, um, your dad and I were born before the end of the Cold War. The Cold War starts definitely by 1950, but most people count it from the end of World War II. Um, And it went up to about 1991 or so. And your dad and I were born in a year that will not be disclosed, but was before 1991. It was 1982. It was not. (laughs) That would make us old. Your mom is so old. Oh, my God. She's practically 70. Anyway, the point is, I went to elementary school on a military base, and they were still doing nuclear drills. You know how you have fire drills? Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, because of our political climate, you have active shooter drills. They probably- Lockdown? Lockdown. Yeah, exactly. They call them lockdown drills to the kids. (laughs) When I was a child, we did not have lockdown drills, but we did have nuclear bomb drills. drills. And as an adult, I find this hilarious. When the nuclear- bomb drill would sound in my military base elementary school we would all get under our desks and uh, if you know anything about nuclear bombs that's kind of hilarious because if you're very close to the actual bomb uh, the force and the shockwave would kill you even under a desk and if you were not that close but you were within the nuclear fallout zone a desk is not going to protect you from radiation poisoning it's going to throw you like it's gonna it's gonna like gonna infect the desk but it's gonna like yeah yeah all over you so i feel like maybe at some point people were like shouldn't we have nuclear bomb drills and the schools were like well what do you want us to do we don't have bunkers they're like i don't know get under a desk (laughs) um but anyway why don't you put them in a closet yeah like a metal closet because that's the same thing as a metal bunker yeah sure or a cement closet very true but we can't even buy public schools pencils so they're certainly not going to (laughs) build bunkers Um, But anyway, so the point is, in the 50s, there's a lot of fear of nuclear weapons. Um, McCarthy has just finished scaring everybody about communism. What's communism? The political system of the Soviet Union, the United States enemy. So McCarthy was a senator who, who would accuse people of being communists and therefore spies for the Soviet Union and like throw them in jail with no proof. And the reason that that is relevant is because three out of the four guys here were caught up in that and were accused of being communists and stuff like that and had to argue against it. It was a big Wait, deal at the time because like- people could just say, hey, I'm pretty sure this guy's a communist sympathizer. And if you had politics that might even suggest some sort of sympathy to that, you could lose your job and your career and everything. It's, it was a big it was a big deal. It's kind of like the witch trials. Yes, yes. that is exactly correct. They, this woman was just accusing random people of witchcraft. Yes. So there's a lot of fear of communism, of cold, of uh, excuse me, of nuclear war, going on in New York at the time. And one of the things that, and then also this fear of being displaced from your homes and stuff like that. And one of the things we know about human beings is that when they are afraid. They tend to react in some of the absolute worst ways imaginable. Um, very they'll few. Do anything. Sorry. That they'll literally do anything. Yeah, they'll. They'll the... liter- They literally do anything. Yeah, that is very true. They will do things that they normally would not do, like drink. Sure, drinking alcohol is definitely a response to stress, but unfortunately, racism also tends to be a very common human response to stress, and so. 
they're being told constantly to be afraid of other, right? Be afraid of the Soviet Union, be afraid of the communists because they're going to destroy us. And they, a lot of people internalize, well, I should clarify, a lot of white people internalize that constant messaging of be afraid of other and then um, sort of externalized it by ramping up a lot of um, racial tension. And this is also, you know, before the civil rights movement really kicks off, but you are definitely starting to have um, more minorities demanding equal rights and things like that, especially in more liberal areas like New York. Who's the president? Well, not Party? not so much that they're demanding it more, but that it's gaining traction, national traction, and people yeah. are starting to pay attention. Yeah, yeah, there you go. What party is the president from at this time? Um, 61 would be um, JFK, and he was a Democrat. Yeah, J- John something Kennedy? John F. Fitzgerald Kennedy, yeah. So... He was against all this. I was going to say, if it was something like a Republican or if it was a Republican president, then I would see why all of this was happening. I I mean, now. Uh, I mean, uh, you can't you can't go saying by political party whether or not people are racist because racism. Is. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying that that is not decided by party affiliation. No. And also keep in mind that in this time period, the Republicans were more liberal and the Democrats tended to be more conservative on racial issues. The uh, South, where they were still segregating and having like white water fountains and stuff like that, were all Democrats. So, yeah, it's a little different than it is now. Oh. Um. But at any rate, so you have this political climate of fear. You have a financial climate where these people are are under stress and trying to be shoved out of their homes and things like that. And so New York City started to experience an increase in gang violence. Um, and a lot of the gang violence was was um, divided along racial lines. So, the Jets are white people. The Sharks are Hispanic. Right. In the film, that's well, how they decided Puerto to Rican show it. Puerto yeah, Puerto Rican exclusively. And so their intentions, I think, were probably good. They set out to create a film talking about racism and how damaging it was. Um, It's pretty clear when you watch the film that they do not think that being racist is a good thing. They do not think that targeting immigrants or migrants um, is a good thing. What are migrants? So an immigrant is somebody that leaves their country and comes to a new country. Immigrant, they they leave here. Um, immigrant, they come here. But what is That's correct. immigrant? So Puerto Ricans are not immigrants because Puerto Rico is part of the United States. A migrant is somebody who moves within the same country. Oh, migration. Right, migration, exactly. But there you've struck on one of the criticisms is that these guys were pretty clear in their intention to create a film that was about immigrants who were, instead of being joined by the um, commonalities of the immigrant experience in the United States, were allowing racism to divide them. Because all the Jets are children of immigrants. They're Polish immigrants, um, Austrian immigrants, Italian immigrants, right? They're all kind of Eastern European um, and Central European immigrants. And then they chose to make the Sharks Puerto Ricans to highlight the Hispanic experience because there was a thriving Puerto Rican community in New York City, it totally escaped their attention, apparently, that Puerto Ricans are not immigrants. By definition, they are migrants. And that's something that um, the Puerto Rican community is not very happy about in terms of the way that West Side Story was written. And that's still a pretty big deal today. I mean, we 
go through all of our like grade school and high school experience hearing about the terror and horror of colonialism making colonies by empire building nations, right? And Puerto Rico is is still basically a colony of the United yes. States. It's, it's Yes, it definitely is. Pretty and, egregious, actually. And, and I got to tell you just this is just my own opinion. This is not like you don't have to agree with me. But personally, I think that the United States either needs to let Puerto Rico be its own country or make them a full state, one or the other. But you can't talk out of one side of your mouth about how damaging colonialism and imperialism are, and then out of the other side of your mouth go, but we do have Puerto Rico and Guam and the U.S. Virgin Islands and, you know, a few others. All of these people who have U.S. passports to travel where they want, but no representation in Congress whatsoever. Right, exactly. Which is why it's always great when Congress votes on debt forgiveness for Puerto Rico. Or disaster assistance for Puerto Rico, say, in the aftermath of a Category 5 hurricane that decimates the island and destroys all of their infrastructure. And then no representative from Puerto Rico can come to speak on behalf of their Puerto Rican constituents. Right. That's awesome. And, you know, speaking of that... Because One of the supposedly it's not awesome. I'm yeah. I'm it's no, not awesome. Being sarcastic. I'm being bitterly sarcastic. It's terrible. <laughs> but it's ironic that you mentioned that because one of the reasons that these gentlemen chose Puerto Ricans to be the ethnicity represented by the sharks is because um in the 50s right before they sat down to create this um Broadway play and eventually film, um the United States had conducted something called Operation Bootstrap, which was where industry leaders went into Puerto Rico and tried to industrialize it and build up a bunch of factories and they displaced a lot of rural people when they did that. They cut down sugarcane fields and stuff like that that people depended on for their livelihood and built factories and told the people, you're not a farmer anymore, now you're a factory worker. Well, if you had owned your own land and been your own boss and- Colonial industrialization. Right. And run a farm, and now someone's telling you no, now you're a factory worker, go work in this place that has terrible working conditions with no union, and make a tiny wage that you can't live on, that's your only choice, and that's, if you oppose it, you're anti-American, um, and disloyal. But you're allowed to move, if you can scrape together the resources, you're going to move. Right, exactly. And so you had a lot of rural Puerto Ricans moving to New York in the wake of Operation Bootstrap. And so that is why the guys chose to make the Sharks represent a Puerto Rican community because they were sympathetic to their plight. I think the intentions were probably good, but in the way that white men tend to do, instead of bringing in diverse voices and bringing in people who actually were Puerto Rican migrants and asking them what their experience was like, they just wrote a story of this is what I think it would be like. And so they get some things right and some things really wrong. And then in the execution of the film, there are some major problems. Like the casting. Like the casting. So let's talk about the casting for a second. I don't think there was any Puerto Ricans even on the set. Very good eye, Claire. There was one. There is one actual uh, Puerto Rican actress it's in the film. It's definitely not the main character. It is not the main character. It's Rita. Anita. It's Anita. It is Anita. Rita Moreno was a very famous actress who played Anita in the film. She was Puerto Rican, and she actually won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for um, for her role. But I thought this was really interesting. She has given some interviews uh, more recently, far removed from the film, where she says that she was actually forced to wear brown face for the performance because they put brown makeup on 
all the other performers who were supposed to be Puerto Rican to make them appear Hispanic. And then her skin was lighter than what they had painted the others to be. So they made her be painted as well. And, and this was my favorite part, when she complained about it to the makeup department and said, I don't understand why you are, you know, trying to make me wear brown face to play a Puerto Rican when I am a Puerto Rican, they accused her of being racist. I mean, that checks out. Do you understand what she means when she says brown face, Claire? They are making her wear brown makeup to make her look brown. Do you, Have you heard the expression blackface? Isn't that when like a whole bunch of white people just dress up as black people? Yeah, so um, brown face is related to a more common subject you may have heard talked about, which is blackface. Historically, especially popularized in vaudeville, but it also occurred in early films and things like that, when there was a black character on screen... Um, or in a play or something like that, they would hire a white performer to play that person because they didn't really hire black people. And they would put black paint or black makeup on their skin to make them appear black. It is an incredibly racist practice, and it is super not acceptable. Um, and did you get fired for not wanting to do that because it was racist? Yes. Yes, she would have been fired had she refused. Um, no, but I'm saying... Like today? Being the painter... Like of the makeup artist, oh, you refused to absolutely. do that because it was yeah. racist. Absolutely, yeah. The makeup artist who has been told this is how I want my performers to look. If they turned around and told the director or the studio, "No, I'm not going to do that," they would have been fired immediately. Because do you even know the name of of anybody who does makeup for films? I don't. Right. So there's no protection for you. Probably the only reason Rita Moreno wasn't fired on the spot for even objecting to it even though she ultimately agreed to do it was because you know she was really good at her role and she was already kind of famous going into it one of the things that you should take away from this conversation claire is that it's really easy to talk about racism or things like that um, or civil rights in a social studies class and think about it as something that has gone by but these continue to be issues that we deal with today plenty of people are cast in roles to play ethnicities that they are not. I think the only one that you really couldn't do today and, and have people be okay with it is um, uh, anybody using blackface to play any uh, African or African-American or characters. Um, even even in some cases, brownface you could still do. I mean, as, as recent, I can definitely think of movies in the 90s where brownface was still a totally acceptable way is it only to people? cast and portray people. I think if I were a director and I was and I was making a movie with like Puerto Ricans in it, I would check out the all the Puerto Rican actors before checking out white actors to play Puerto Rican. It's an interesting thing that you say that because Steven Spielberg is currently working on remaking West Side Story. I think he and, left the project. Oh, did he leave the project? Yeah. Oh, man. Bummer. Okay, well, he was. And when they put out a casting call, they did specify we are only interested in Hispanic performers. I don't think they isolated it to Puerto Rican, but they did say that, you know, if you're going to play a Hispanic character, you need to be Hispanic. Another thing that I thought was really interesting is being racist or is that just well this I mean gets, you you've got to you got to you got to form your own opinion about that right this gets into issues of representation we've talked a little bit about representation it's I think important to figure out a way to think about it as these are reasonable ways to encourage representation or encourage diversity of opinion or contribution and these are not right ways to treat people that are not like you. Um, because, precisely because, it's so easy to think in your head, 
let's say that you you say okay well but we're not making a movie about hispanics or the hispanic experience in new york we're making a movie about the puerto rican experience in new york like what is the appropriate level of representation to achieve for that character and there's there's a really challenging conversation to be had about you know what can hispanic actors portray and can they do that role justice or do you have to be puerto rican or do you have to be puerto rican and grown up in new york in order to do that and that's a really complicated conversation to have where a lot of people will i guess maybe reasonably disagree about what the right answer is but it's really challenging stuff but another thing in addition to forcing her to wear brown face um the directors because there are two of them asked rita moreno to adopt a fake hispanic accent that's actually not how she talks yeah and the reason for it is because natalie wood who played maria is not Hispanic. Uh, she's a white girl and spoke native English. And so she was... She, the makeup she, artist for Maria didn't do very well because she looked white in most of the parts. You know, look Hispanic. Well. Puerto Rican. Yeah, I mean... But she is white, so maybe that's okay. I right, don't know. yeah. Like, and, and, and other than skin tone, I, you know, that gets really complicated because uh, Puerto Rico does not have one homogenous population living there. You know, there are people there that have ancestors that are the Taino Indians. Um, there are people who uh, have Spanish ancestry. There's people with French ancestry. There are people who are descendants of African slaves. And so you have very fair skin uh, toned people in Puerto Rico and up to um, African-American people in Puerto Rico. So there isn't like... And that's part of the problem with the film is they had one idea of what Puerto Ricans were allowed to look like, and it it doesn't it's and not so you a reflection wind up of with reality. a stereotype on the screen, and, and stereotype is really the word to yeah. to lean into there. Stereotype is like where something is supposedly real but actually isn't the lie, right? Yeah, I think that's yes, yeah. It's 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 a visualization or an image or a, a type of thinking about something that people say is how it is, but it's not based on anything other than a very shallow understanding of really anything about whatever that thing is you're talking about. Right. So Natalie Wood... That's the best case scenario. There's lots of horrible things about stereotypes as well, like, like, like deliberate interpretations of, like malicious interpretations of things. Yeah. So Natalie Wood um, is a white woman adopting a fake accent to appear Puerto Rican on screen. Um, George Chikiris is a Greek man adopting a fake accent to appear Puerto Rican on screen. Um, and so is pretty much all of the sharks. And so for Rita Moreno to speak the way that she normally spoke made her stand out and appear different than everyone else. And it sort of highlighted how inauthentic their accents were. And so the directors asked her to mimic the way that everyone else was speaking so that they would all seem the same. Which is actually kind of a big deal. Accents now today are a, a big topic of conversation. Adopting an accent for a joke or anything like that, that isn't your own accent is probably not a good thing. That's a stereotype or, um, uh, or, or really racism uh, once, once you get down to it because that's not your accent. And the accent that you put on 
really usually doesn't sound like that. And I, I thought a lot about it because I think about um, when I hear Southern accents on the television, the idea that people have or this characterization of the South and what they have their characters say when they're speaking in a Southern accent really bothers me a lot. Because mommy is Southern and like that's not how she sounds. Well, your mom and I both grew up in the Panhandle of Florida, which is for all intents Southern Alabama. Um, in terms of like like style of speaking and culture and that sort of thing. And when you grow up in the South, you're very aware of all of the different types of Southern accents. And you're extremely aware of how people talk about people from the South and the kind of hick accent that they put on for a joke. And I really didn't like that very much, but I would still find myself doing French accents or Russian accents or you know Spanish accents for a joke. And I was like, you know what? I think probably the Spanish people or the Russian people that hear that accent are like, for goodness, that's funny. I get it. Whatever. It's a joke. Move on. Uh, the same way that I feel about Southern accent stuff. And, and that's kind of what had me come around to like, like realizing how upsetting that is. Yeah. Um, another thing that I thought was really interesting on the topic of representation and racism is that of the five men who were really responsible for creating this film, right? So Lawrence, Bernstein, Sondheim, Lehman, Robbins, and Wise. Four out of those five are Jewish. Lawrence, Bernstein, Sondheim, Lehman, and Robbins are all Jewish men. And Tony, interestingly enough, is supposed to be a Jewish character. He's supposed to be the son of two Polish Jewish immigrants who came to the United States fleeing the Holocaust. That was their original idea for Tony. But I don't think anybody watching that film would go, oh, yeah, Tony's definitely Jewish. I mean, he, he has thick, curly black hair. That's really the only sort of stereotypical Jewish feature that he has. He doesn't talk about his home life. He doesn't really talk about his family. I don't have curly black hair, and I'm Jewish. Yeah, but that's why I said stereotype, right? Remember? Because yeah. uh, the stereotype, like, for example, that it's all Jewish people look a certain way, it can be true for some people. But it's not true for everybody. And that's what makes it a stereotype as opposed to a fact. This is, by the way, this conversation that we're having right now is why when you asked to watch Jojo Rabbit the other day, your mom and I were like, you should not watch this movie on your own. Because it's there's, very confusing. there's a lot of stereotype work mm. done in Jojo Rabbit, which Taika Waititi, the guy who made the movie, is doing it intentionally to draw out issues with stereotype and racist thinking but the way that it's presented on the screen you really need to talk through it with somebody or else you will look at that and say oh this is how things are supposed to be this is how people see them and that's that's kind of a problem when you take a movie like west side story that's supposed to be about the immigrant experience in america and cultural friction in the melting pot and it, and it really is an admirable idea for a story. And in a lot of ways, it's a fascinating choice to look at that through the Romeo and Juliet lens. Like there's a lot of really terrific, amazing stuff about this movie that they just mess up because they don't get it. And they don't bring people to the table who do get it. Right. Like if I was going to make a movie, like you said, Claire, about the Puerto Rican experience in New York... I might at least take some meetings right. <laughs> with some folks who could say, if I'm like, hey, does this make sense? And they're like, no, none of that is correct. Yeah. And and it's funny because 
the character of Tony and the portrayal of Tony is such a juxtaposition. A juxtapose is when you take two things that are different and you put them next to each other and see how different they are, right? Is is such a juxtaposition against the way that the Puerto Rican characters are portrayed because Tony, you know, his Jewishness, so to speak, is there. He has curly black hair. That was clearly something that they wanted him to have. Um, he works in a deli. His um, doc who is his friend who employs him, that helps him, um, has some sort of stereotypical Jewish accent about his English. There is a very uh, accurate portrayal sort of buried in the film of problems that young Jewish kids had in Manhattan in terms of the conflicts with the police, in terms of their treatment by the rest of the neighborhood, in terms of the friction between them and Catholic people, right? It's all in the film, but it's very subtle and it doesn't rely on a lot of stereotypes and there's nothing fake or inauthentic about it. So it's like, you know, it makes me wonder, okay, if you understood, right, as a Jewish man, how frustrating it is to see Jewish people portrayed incorrectly on screen. And so when you made your movie, you made a point of doing that right, why did you not understand that that would be a problem for the Puerto Rican people? Well, I, I think it's important to remember, too, that in terms of the way that portrayal went on the screen in the 1960s, West Side Story is a pretty stunning success. That's true. When juxtaposed with some of the other films depicting yeah. like non-white-centric yes. stories. Very true. It's, it's the best of the bad, so to speak. You were talking about Jojo Rabbit and the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And I read this book called Mouse that Daddy said that I should read. Yeah, yeah. the graphic and, novel series. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of surprised that like that like this woman, um, well, Mouse Woman, quote unquote Mouse Woman. So Mouse is a graphic novel by Art Spiegelman, and it's two volumes, and the the characters are sort of anthropomorphized animals, but. The, the stories in the book are, are based real. on the stories that um, the author's dad told him growing up about what it was like to live during the Holocaust and their experience uh, dealing with that. So it's kind of surprised that like nowadays you would rather you wouldn't kill yourself rather than some you wouldn't like kill yourself when someone was on their way to kill you because you wouldn't know. But then. So there's so there's a scene in the book, right, where the yeah. the Nazis are coming to take this family away, and the and mom decides to kill to poison everybody, right. so that she doesn't have to die in the, she doesn't have to have a because she die. knows what's coming, and that's yeah. the tough choice that she has to make. But I guess what I'm not sure that I see is how do you relate that to West Side Story in this conversation? Because she would rather like die mm-hmm. to be with. Oh, because Maria is willing to risk everything to be with Tony. Yeah. And Tony is willing to risk everything to be with Maria. Yeah. She would rather die in her way than risk being torn apart from her family and having to endure that loss. And that then is similar to the relationship there. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's a core part of Romeo and Juliet. I, I actually, you know, Tony's experience too is even a good analogy with that because when Tony believes that Maria is dead, and of course, we know she's not dead, but he thinks she is. He's running through the streets yelling, Chino, shoot me too. Shoot me too, Chino, because he'd rather be dead than live without her. Chino, shoot me too. Yeah, and and that's certainly 
uh, probably the motivation for at least part of the motivation for that mother is that she'd rather be dead than live without her kids. When you don't have control of the things in your life anymore, it's easy to want to find the only piece of control that you would have left in any situation, and that's like, whether or not you live. She also mm-hmm. she also didn't even let her let her like I think it's like her brother or something know that she's about to kill his kid because they're gonna because she has one kid, and then she is with um and then the guy in the book. Uh, supposedly, I don't know if he really did, but he has supposedly an older brother in that time. And he was killed as like two years old or something from being poisoned because he doesn't, because the mom doesn't want her children to die of the Holocaust. So she would rather kill them herself. So, and herself. So I think, I think that we've had a pretty good conversation about some of the challenges about telling stories about a cultural experience in America or in other places and really not being part of that culture and that you know sometimes maybe it's better not to write the story yourself and to find somebody who's prepared to write that and if you do take it on yourself to write that story you you really you really do a disservice for whatever your good or noble intent might be mm-hmm. to not really thoroughly research and understand those people's experiences because they are real people right. and they are not you and your experiences. And, and it is so very, very easy to make really, really terrible mistakes with the best of intentions. But yeah. I guess what I would be curious to know is overall, and we really didn't talk about this very much, um, but Claire, did, did you enjoy West Side Story? I mean, it is a wonderful movie. Like aside from the problems with it, the music is awesome. Yeah. Um, the cinematography is great. It's a, it's an awesome movie. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's been singing that song for a while. That's a catchy tune. It is. (laughs) Officer Krupke is one of my favorite songs from any (laughs) Broadway show. Officer Krupke, we're misunderstood. I forgot the parts right here. But you got the tune. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that tune sticks with you. Officer Krupke, Krupp you. Yeah. That's your favorite part, right? Krupp you. Krupp you. Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine why that is. No, I can't either. I do think uh, since we've. You know, I started out by saying I think this is a good example of co-viewing and providing context. Uh, We spent a lot of time talking about the things that West Side Story could have done better. I do want to briefly highlight the things that they did actually really well. Um, You mentioned, yeah, music for sure. Cinematography. Cinematography. It is a beautiful film. The story is very compelling and it's a nice update to Romeo and Juliet. I personally like that Juliet doesn't die in the end of this one. Um, You know, in the original Romeo and Juliet, she kills herself when she realized that Romeo is dead. Um, Maria. Oh, spoilers. Sorry. Romeo isn't actually dead, though. <laughs> it's she a 16th a century play. If you haven't read it by now, you know. He, he isn't actually dead, though. He took a potion to pretend to die in a secret plan that he forgot to tell Juliet. And then Juliet kills herself. Then Romeo wakes up. She's dead. He kills We're definitely going to do a whole thing with Shakespeare. Yeah. I just don't know if we're going to do the one with the Shakespeare version of Shakespeare or the like. Is that backwards though? I thought, Englishized... I thought Juliet takes the potion. Is it Romeo? Juliet takes the potion. Yeah. And... I think Juliet takes the potion. Oh, Romeo, Romeo kills himself. Yeah. And Juliet, then Juliet takes a potion herself. to get herself smuggled uh, out of her house basically because yeah. she'll be a corpse. 
And then Romeo, who's a doofus, is like, shit, she's dead. Yeah. He's also like 15. So cut him some slack. No, no, no. Children <laughs> children are dumb. She's 13. He's 15, I want to say, or something. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's pretty it was, dramatic. I thought they were both 18. No. no. In the films, they're 18 because they have sex, and it would be illegal to show children having sex. In the book, they are children. Well, she is, for sure. She's 12 or 13. How? How are they marrying her at 13? Yep, that's a good question. Well, boy, there's... Isn't that illegal? We don't... We no. do not have time to get into that issue yeah, today. that's a lot. But in the this, Middle Ages, yeah. that was a normal age for a woman to get married. Okay, so... A woman that, Girl, I know, I know. Well, at that time, they okay. considered her a woman. I okay. don't. Okay, on that note, okay. on a Juliet no. note... So back, back to what I was saying. I do like that Maria does not kill herself after Tony dies. You know, she's much stronger than that, and she is going to live on and make sure that the rest of them... Um, start behaving in a more reasonable fashion. I think that that's a much better ending, personally. Other things that they did really well, besides the cinematography and the music and everything that we've talked about, the performances, if you can get past the fake accents and the brown face, the actual performances are very good. They're very convincing no, and compelling. No, they were great. They won Oscars for a reason. Right. It was, I mean, it was, it was really good. Honestly, I couldn't, I don't know what, I don't know if like being a parent at the time and your kids watching and then saying, is that what it really is like to be a Puerto Rican? And then you have to explain to them that it, that the, the, none of those people are Puerto Rican except for the main, except for Anita. I would really be curious to look at reviews from 1961 when this movie came out, but I would be willing to wager that that was not remotely part of the conversation. Yeah. So um, when West Side Story initially premiered on Broadway, the role of Anita was played by Cheetah Rivera, which is another very famous Hispanic actress. And then Rita Moreno played Anita. And so the role of Anita is credited by many people with opening a lot of doors for Hispanic performers because it really made Cheetah Rivera famous um, uh, among people outside of the Hispanic community. And it made Rita Moreno a household name in the United States. And so a lot of people... Um, credit West Side Story with opening a lot of doors for subsequent Hispanic performers. I'm doing, I don't think that's really opening a lot of doors when there's literally only one actor. Sure, but it it proved... She's not even treated fairly. No, you're right. You are 100% right. She was not treated fairly and and they only cast one person. But she demonstrated both Cheetah Rivera on Broadway and and, uh, Rita Moreno on screen proved to Hollywood casting agents that a Hispanic performer could sell to white audiences. This is still a conversation that happens today. And the biggest way that you can see that same conversation go on today is movies directed by women, especially superhero movies directed by women. They are few and far between. And when a woman directs a superhero movie, if it fails... The inclination from big money Hollywood is to say, well, it's because a woman directed it. We need to not have women direct it. And so an individual failure becomes a failure for a group of people. And so in 1961, like your mom is talking about with the movie, an individual success could be a success for a group of people. Is it like in Singing in the Rain where their talkie film doesn't work very well and everybody's criticizing and is like, who comes up with that? Love you. Yes, no, no, no. It's it's exactly like that. It's it's the same you. kind of talk like that about what could be making movies. The the bullshit talk about people like, oh well, I just casually think this, so therefore it's law. Like the way that big money decisions can be made through conversation 
those are hit the hardest by racism, especially racism where people aren't conscious of the fact that they're being racist or misogynist or, you know, or anything like that. And it's not good that one person's success can be a success for a group of people that opens them the door. But but it still is. It, it, it becomes the way that that success is allowed to happen. And for better or worse, it's a good thing that success comes out of that. So later on, if you were trying to make a film about any Hispanic community's experience and you wanted to cast Hispanic performers in it, if the studio said to you, well, that's not going to sell, you, you could say, point to West this Side and Story, go, West Side Story Oscars. won four Oscars, made a lot of money. I think you might be wrong, right? So it gives people a foundation to build on. Um, Which is not how it should be. No, but but it is. It is how it is. Um, so that was another success. One thing that is very commonly pointed to is the fact that um, four out of those six men that I mentioned were gay. And um, there is a lot of interesting portrayal of masculinity in West Side Story. I think you commented on it when we were watching it, that these gang members are supposed to be scary and tough, but they're doing ballet. And they're very graceful. They're very elegant. They're very slim. You don't have any like big hulking muscles or anything like that. And um, they. Right. And they're they're very graceful. They're very graceful. They're very elegant. And they do some really complex ballet moves. So there there are no openly gay characters in West Side Story. But there are some people who believe that there may have been and sort of a suggestion of a relationship between. Riff and Tony before Tony meets Maria, um, which I think is an interesting take because there's not a lot of bisexual characters in any film. Riff, by the way, Claire, you'll remember or recognize him. Riff was played by Russ Tamblin, who played Gideon in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, um, which I think was also him. an Arthur Lawrence movie. I did. You know? I said, yeah. I said, why does he look so familiar? Yeah. And yeah, so he played Gideon. So, but that's not, it's not overt, but there are some people who feel like it's there. West Side Story is often held up as, you know, a good film for LGBT youth who are looking to see people who are more like them. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things and and definitely something that's not talked about often is the character Anybody's. Anybody's, is, you may remember, is the girl who wants to join the Jets and they won't let her in because she's not a boy. Um, Anybody's is widely considered by the LGBTQ community to be the first trans character portrayed on screen where it's not a joke, where it's just that's just who she is. Pronouns are a little bit tricky there because in the film, uh, they refer to her as a her and she uses she she doesn't contradict that. Yeah. Yeah. Never contradicts it. But dresses as a boy, cuts hair as a boy, wants to be part of the group, uh, refers to. I'm going to just go with themselves, refers to themselves as buddy, guy, etc. And so not a lot of, of genuine portrayals of trans characters, even now, much less in 1961. So that I thought is worth mentioning. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that, that all this stuff is part and parcel experience. And I think, you know, West Side Story makes for a complicated conversation because it is such a great piece of art and it is definitely fraught with mistakes in terms of the goals that they sort of had set for themselves in terms of representation and exploration of real issues. And I, and I think something that you'll see or, or hear, I guess, on, on these episodes is that, you know, when we get into some of the more challenging movies to talk about 
where there are issues like this that are very complex, it becomes much more sort of instructive in nature. And at least that's how we approach it. So I, I think this is a very mom and dad heavy episode of West Side Story. And we find ourselves in a position where talking about these things takes a little bit more you know, mom and dad talking. So Claire, you, you've been a real sport for the entire time in this conversation. And I think that you, you paid attention a lot. I hope you feel like you learned something. I did. I, I'm glad to hear that you learned something. I mean, that is the whole purpose of this is to have a conversation about movies. And sometimes it's good to explore what we think about them. And, and, and other times I really like to hear what Claire has to think about that and, and her take on watching some of the movies. And I, and I think the challenge with some of the musicals that we've been talking right now is that, you know, when you're talking about musicals from the 50s and 60s, especially ones about early filmmaking or like cultural friction in the United States and the melting pot, like there's just a lot of stuff that we sort of have to share in order to have something meaningful come out of this. So, yeah, but I, I enjoyed West Side Story. Danielle, what do we have up next? What's the title of our next musical? Funny Girl is up next. Funny Girl. Funny Girl will be a first watch for me. I'm pretty excited to take a look at this one, though. And that's one of the ones that's been a long time on my two correct list. So I'm looking forward to that. In terms of upcoming business, uh, I have started the process of moving the podcast. Well, not moving, but including the podcast on YouTube And instead of just throwing up all the episodes all at once, I'm going to load them up two a week until we get caught up. And if my math is right, and usually it isn't, uh, it's going to take us about 40 weeks to get caught up. Uh, So if you just discover the podcast, either you you heard us talking about... You're birthing a baby. I know. I know. Um, it's going to be 10 months uh, to get caught up at the rate that we're going. But no, um, if, if, you know, if you found us through listening to our Creature from Black Lagoon or our Universal Horror Exploration or our exploration of Alfred Hitchcock, tune in. Uh, I'm going to start airing them on Mondays and Thursdays on YouTube and catch back up with the episode from the early days. See us. I mean, I really feel like we've improved a lot as a podcast since then. On March the 16th, which is a Monday... I am going to put up our first episode ever, which was Attack the Block. And then that will be followed on Thursday by our second episode ever, which was The Terminator. Uh, So I, you know, a lot of these conversations that we have are sort of movies from the 80s and 90s that I grew up with that were really the title selection was about giving Claire a platform and a frame of reference for talking about movies. And so in, in this one where I'm saying we spent a lot more time on West Side Story kind of doing some instruction and some knowledge sharing Um, A lot of these early movies were really just talking with Claire about her thoughts and experiences watching a movie, say, in Attack the Block, when you get the, when you see your first head ripped off a body on screen, how do you take that? And what does that look like? And this is, this is really what I was, what I was building to, you know, when we first started out, the title of the podcast, obviously, is Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures, and it was really just me and Claire talking about movies and it was a riff on bill and ted's excellent adventures which uh you can catch up with that episode when we watch it for the first time in like four weeks on youtube but this episode of the podcast is number 40 and we did 20 episodes of the podcast where it was just bill and claire and now we've done 20 episodes of the podcast where it is bill and claire and danielle and did you give me a present? <laughs> no. No. I'm giving you acknowledgement on the show. That's that's really what we're budgeted to provide. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
but I, I, I think that that's a big deal. And, you know, at, at first, Danielle, you were really shy about participating and being on the podcast. And you've gone from a place of being too timid to participate and hear your voice to guesting on other podcasts and participating in ours. And I mean, you did all the work for West Side Story and this entire segment of the podcast is your idea. And I, I just, I'm really proud of you and I'm really happy that you have joined the podcast effort. Well, thank you. All right, good. That's all we're going to say about that. Never again will I say I'm grateful for what you've contributed to this Wait podcast. Wait a minute. You didn't tell me I was, like, I would have prepared a speech. No, I don't. There's no speech necessary. Oh my God. I could have, I could have gotten up here and thanked a whole lot of people and forgotten Claire on purpose. I would have um, mentioned some really controversial political topics. Hashtag Operation Gluting Spamers. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Uh, so that's going to do it for today. Claire, why don't you take us out? So on that note, make sure to check out the chat cast in the mouth of darkness. You can check out our earlier videos if you want. You can find us on Podbean, YouTube on March 16th. Um, you can find us on Google Play, um, on the app, on the um, iTunes podcasts. Yeah. And rate and review. Rate and review for and five guys, stars. I don't. I think YouTube is subscribe a thing on YouTube. Yeah, make sure to subscribe and hit notifications for all on YouTube. I'm make still learning red, all about the YouTube's. Make that red button go gray. Is it a thumbs up? I know your yeah. your YouTube show people always. Wait, like what did you say about ups. red buttons and gray? We'll make that. Hang, I got to get my notes out. Hang on a second. <laughs> so subscribing, it's originally a red button, and then when you click, and then when you click it, it to let you know what happens, it brings up a little tab that says you have subscribed to so-and-so. And it's gray? And, and then it turns gray. And then for So some, you better make that red button go gray or I'm going to come for you. I will find you. Okay, Daddy's psycho and I'm going to arrest him and kill him now? That's my Daniel Day-Lewis impression from Last of the Mohicans. Oh my God, no. It's I Speaking will find about, you and he's promising to rescue her, not attack her. Oh, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was uh, Liam Neeson from Taken that yeah, I was Yeah, no, doing. that's... Yeah, okay. There we I go. got confused because we right. were talking about cultural appropriation. I gotta and, tell uh, you... Uh, yeah, well, that's a, another issue. But um, I don't know how anybody could confuse Daniel Day-Lewis's abs with Liam Neeson. I mean, I love Liam Neeson, but... He is no Daniel Day-Lewis in Last of the Mohicans. I, all I know is Liam Neeson really took a lot from Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. I will find you. <laughs> and kill you. <laughs> all right, Claire, you may continue. Make sure to give us a five-star rating. Yes, do make sure to give us a five-star rating. I feel like we've worked five stars hard for years now. Two years. Yeah, two years. Two seasons. So, yeah, let's end this episode. Um, we will see you guys next time for... Funny Girl. For Funny Girl. And... Hey, you! Yeah, let's go oh, to Funny Leo, Girl. Mr. Yeah, you! Peace out. Give me one good reason for not dragging you down the station house, you punk! Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand, it's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand. Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks. Golly Moses, naturally we're punks. Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood.